Hello, listeners. Are you tired of having Alien Minute episodes only on weekdays? Are your Saturday mornings devoid of meaning without that trusty daily podcast popping up in your feed? Well, what if we told you there was a way to remedy your woes? All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash alien minute and subscribe to get a supplemental episode of your favorite daily podcasts. You'll hear us talk about what movies we've been watching, answer listener emails, and talk about alien-related topics that didn't make it on the show. You'll also be able to play along with the Coppola Quadfecta. Don't know what that is? Well, then come on over to patreon.com forward slash alien minute, subscribe, listen to the weekly episode, and find out. Again, patreon.com forward slash alien minute. We'll see you on Saturdays. Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. My name is John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we'll be looking at Minute 58, which begins with the continuation of the chestburster search and ends with Kane's body accelerating through space. And we're joined again by our guest, uh, Margaret Meyer and Katie Mello. Thank you for coming back again today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hello. So Kane's gone, guys. He's left. He's dead. He's left. The, he's left the building. He's shut so, off the mortal coil. And how much time has passed? Yeah, that's a good. I, I just I, jumped in. Sorry, I'm so excited. It's a good point. Uh, well, I'll tell you this: in the script, that we have a scene between the alien bolting off and the search, where they oh. discuss what it is they should do. Part of it is this discussion of uh, Ash. How did you not know? Um, that's in some different versions of the script or in the novelization. Um, and then there's discussion of, well, we don't want to go to bed with this thing on the ship. we got to find it. So there's that beat between. Is, is there not also a discussion about what it is and how it came and how did it manage to come out? And there's, right, there's yeah. some kind of, you know, bad it's, exposition of, of all of that. And I mean, it's so great that they cut all that stuff out. Yeah. And it keeps us and it keeps the story a little bit ahead of us. So it doesn't slow down for all this explaining stuff. And. Not to be critical of Ridley Scott, but he was the guy that always used to talk in early interviews about how important it is to just show everything and not have Irving the Explainer come on and explain. And like his movies now, like The Counselor, I mean, it is just exposition after exposition after exposition. Even Prometheus is full of it. Uh, And it's like, what happened? Yeah, I mean, this is the same man who his cut of Blade Runner is no voiceover. Right. And Ford, so it's kind of weird that he's become exactly what you just said. Too yeah. much exposition. It is, because that was certainly not what he wanted to do with Blade Runner, and or Harrison Ford really didn't want to do with Blade Runner. And, to, and I, to take the opposite side, you know, it, it may also just be that that he's a corporate filmmaker, and the way that corporations make movies now is different than when they made movies in the 70s and the 80s, because the filmmaker had a lot more control. And maybe now he's right. got to go along to get along, and the studio says, we need all this stuff explained. Yeah, maybe What's he a- doesn't put up a big fight when it comes mm-hmm. to this stuff anymore. I do know that um, that there are several movies he's worked on that as soon as they wrapped shooting, he was on to the next movie. And he sort of left everything to the editors and left everything to the to the decision makers at the studio. Not in all of his films, but there have been a couple of instances where I know that happened. So, hmm. I think sometimes you just make money and do the films you want to do. 
sometimes you're just making films to make money and sometimes you make the ones you want to make. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Well, I think, you know, as artists age, often they just get to the point where they just want to complete the project. I mean, that, that seems to be like Woody Allen. He's just ready to write, shoot, get it done, move on to the next one. I think that that's natural. You see that with different artists as they get older. They farm out tasks to other to, to um, assistants and so on. And, and it's kind of a natural progression, maybe. I don't know. So, so by not doing that, by not having all that yap-yap, and by going to this shot in the corridor, again, it's that camera, that, you know, that, that subjective observational camera, just looking up one corridor, across the corridor, across the junction, to finally, and you kind of see them in the, ver- in the background at the very beginning of the shot, and then 26 seconds later, we get to the end of it. And it's, an, it's so interesting because it could be the alien's point of view. It could mm-hmm. be that impassive camera. It could be just a really perverse move to put the audience in a position where we can't do anything. We have no control over how the story is going. Why the hell are we sitting here looking at this corridor when I want to know what's going to happen next? I mean, it, and it, it, it serves multiple purposes, I think. I saw it as like a breather because of what just happened. You're like, oh, you just need a minute. Yep, and it does that too. So you can you can just try to process what you just saw. So it's kind of a genius move that it manages to do something for the audience, do something for the mood, uh, you know, all all at the same time, and even create potentially a, a sense of of suspense in terms of whose point of view it is. I saw it as the the feeling I got from it from watching it this time was being lost in a labyrinthian like system of caves or something from it, like how that might feel. Uh, I, I love the choice of not showing them searching because I actually expected it when I was started this minute. I expected to see them stalking through the hallway. And when I didn't get it, I felt lost. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what they were going for here. It reminds you of being in a labyrinth that you could hear people. But um, as far as we know, you know, if you turn the next corner, there's not going to be anybody there either. And how lost are you going to get? And that feeling is it gave me a little bit of anxiety even after however many times I've watched this movie. I needed that isolated look, I think, the minute, one-minute look to really notice that. But I probably felt the feeling before and just went with the flow. But And also given how fast the editing was in the previous scene, to now drop us back to what is really the language system of the movie, which are these long, continuous takes, uh, to remind us that we're still in the same movie. We're still in that... That creepy, slow, you know, sometimes kind of walking through mud feeling that you get when they went down to the planet, for example. Um, it, it reminds us that we're still in that same movie, which I think is also really a, a very, very clever move on their part. Well, it's also a beautiful moment for the sound design, that rhythmic machine sound that you're hearing, like the ship breathing almost is... Yeah, I love that. In itself and makes you feel the vastness of that ship and how finding that alien is going to be like finding a needle in a haystack and makes it a little more scary to me even that that thing is loose in that ship. All this work that we're doing in our heads for these 26 seconds, all these things that we've all just talked about, that's all happening like right there in the audience in that, in that moment. And I can't think of very many films lately where that happens, you know, where that there is that space. Yeah. No, that never happens. And the set's gorgeous too. There's that too. 
I, I was actually glad, you know, to get another moment where we have this nice view of the detail of the corridor again, and we get that ladder way that's right in, our, in the foreground as we pan over. Um, it was kind of cool, it almost like I was this far into the show. Uh, having watched these minutes for so long, I was almost nostalgic for those early five minutes. Like, oh, I remember when it was just nice to look at the ship. <laughs> uh, I was listening to some interviews with some of the effects people, and they said that they would make those hallways, and then Ridley would come in and say, add more. Yep. They called them Greedleys. So all the plastic gugas. There's so much texture. So much texture. They scoured uh, junkyards and scrapyards, and I think a lot of that is vacuum-formed, though, probably. Hmm. Well, there's that panel as they're going through, There's that, which are old aircraft. You can just feel like that's an old aircraft with all the switches and dials. Right, and the floor is a bunch of German pallets, apparently, that they found. What's a German pallet? I guess it's a pallet (laughs) for shipping things to put goods on when they're being shipped. But that's how they covered the floor in those hallways. So it looked really um, industrial. When we did a, a really robotic, uh, a, a commercial that was supposed to be very robotic, and yeah, we did a lot of vacuum form. Mm-hmm. So you lay out your pieces, and then you just do a vacuum form so you can easily replicate it. Right, because they needed so many. So much. How long does it take to do that, to make one and then to manufacture, you know, hundred of them. Well, if you're just making them by, by hand, then you would need X amount of vacuum hose and this and that and the other. But then if you vacuum form it, then it's quite quick. Yeah. You Once you make the initial mold the shape, the buck, yeah, then you could turn them up. You know. But I think those are so dimensional that even if they were doing that, then they were addressing on top of that to get an even deeper texture. Because if you're just, if you imagine, if you're trying to create this texture, if you're just putting it on a flat wall, it's going to have that flat feeling. But if you're doing it on something that then is, there's just so much texture. It's just upon, and what is all that stuff? That's a good question. (laughs) Computer parts. There's a lot of dials. This is not, this is so not the Star Trek Enterprise. Right. It does seem There's, like if all those knobs and everything, all who is it that knows how to, you know, work all that stuff? Is it really a seven-person crew can do all this stuff? I'm going to put it out there that Brett is the one that knows how to do all his savantish. I have a theory that he's a bit of an engineering savant, so I'm going to use this to fortify that theory. And I think they made every switch. I know we're not in the hallway talking about in the... What, what the, cockpit? the cockpit, I guess you would call it, but every switch had to do something. They didn't want it to be just poking on There's buttons. There's so many Everything switches. does something. Wow. Really? Kind of amazing. That's Apparently really cool. they, Yeah, they had to wire all that. They would make four panels a day, and it had to be all wired. Anyway, getting ahead, but... No, wow. that's that's really where we are. I mean, from that from that corridor, we go to this to the bridge, and we, we go to yet another from, from one 26-second shot we go to now a 20-second shot, which is just a single move in through the bridge, finally winding up on that view screen. And you see all these details that you're talking about right now, all of these switches and lights and all that stuff. What kind of spaceships have we seen before this? Because I would say the Enterprise, Millennium Falcon, I mean, this, this feels so different. So to me, revolutionary just it's so tactile yeah it seems like the cockpit of a helicopter or some 
or an airplane. Like there, are, mm-hmm. like there's something about the way the dials and I switches think are shaped. Submarine, like they're toggle. There's a lot of toggle. Like off on. Yeah. Yeah, they they definitely, you know, pillaged old junkyards with with scrapped planes and so on for all these parts. They wanted you to think about those things, planes and submarines and helicopters and things that you've seen in movies before but aren't related necessarily to a spaceship. That way they could so, make the spaceship relate more relatable, more earthy, more... I was going to say, does this spaceship feel more accessible than, say, the Enterprise, which is so small? The Enterprise that you've seen in 1979, for sure, definitely so. I would say, I guess, every inter- version of the Enterprise... If you w- the next generation is even more sparse. Yeah, the, the next generation is more of a Ramada, you know, like a the lobby of the Ramada Hotel or something. Like it doesn't look like it really functions, and it's and maybe I guess in the eighties when when early nineties when Next Generation was on, they didn't understand the touchscreen concepts like people watching the show as much as we do now. But that was really foreign when that show was on, and that's exactly what Star Trek should be showing. It's looking for. It's got an idealistic future, something that we don't know yet that we can look forward to, where Alien's future is supposed to seem more immediate. Well, it's the future, but it's very much like now. Alien feels like where we will actually be, and Star Trek feels like where we want to be. Yeah, the the Roddenberry futurism is about all about something you haven't been able to imagine yet. You know, that's how I've always interpreted it. Part of mm-hmm. why you can look at it, where they can say, yeah, we don't use money anymore. And, and idealistic things like that that are completely like you can't imagine that now same thing with the technology that's what a transport we talked about the transporters we talked about the replicators the like, transport is so bad oh i want to but i can't imagine it you know and you know they can just slingshot around the sun and travel back in time and that's star trek aliens not interested in any of that stuff they want you to feel it's the future but it's now it's so much more realistic. It's a very accessible yeah. future, yeah. which probably it's makes grimy. it scarier because you can almost picture it yourself in that situation. Yeah, yeah. If I was really in the future, it would be kind of dirty in a lot of switches. <laughs> There'd be no transformers. Well, it wasn't. I just reading something that the military is still using floppy drives for uh, oh, some uh, some kind of technology, right? Yeah. And. Aren't we supposed to be past that? So, so when you look at this kind of weird analog future in in Alien, it's maybe not that far from the ugly realities of technology. What what is this? How are they utilizing floppy drives? I want to know now. And it's something. It's up. like I'm a big deal. A yeah, yeah. If you if you it, it's on like maybe it's the maybe it's the the nuclear. Um, oh please, <laughs> rockets. I think it maybe is. I think it's the. I was just gonna joke that you know. Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington and Crimson Tide each have red floppy disks that they have to put in at the same time. And perhaps that's what it is. I don't want it to It is. That. I think oh it my is. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, now I'm really scared. Mitch, I was already a little, you know, we were a little nervous about how they set up these scenes in the movie. And now we have some real world fears to worry about. I think you got to say, uh, by the way, something about the music cue at this point in the movie. I mean, that beautiful... That beautiful oh. kind of lilting, kind of TikTok-y kind of uh, theme of the Nostromo—it's mm-hmm. just so gorgeous. Yeah. To know is one of the bits that's from his um, movie Freud, or is that what he composed for? No, this is this is stuff composed for the for the movie. There's only two places where they use the Freud music okay. from, from Freud. There's two Freud, and then the then the last. Yeah, Howard yeah, Hansen the, stuff. The Howard Hansen. But this is beautiful. This is Jerry Goldsmith at his 
best. You know, he makes great space music. <laughs> well, I want to definitely, we should definitely talk about the funeral here. So as we get a, mo- a moment, we stop and we have a naval funeral for Kane. Okay, so is, I would not imagine, is this standard procedure for what you would do with a body? I would think that they would put him in cryo sleep. And so his family could have him back. But I understand, obviously, this was crazy circumstances. So would this be what they would do normally, or is this special because of grossness? Well, I suppose there's the chance there could be another something incubating in him. So I think my inclination would be to get rid of the body. Yeah, get it out. We've talked about quarantine earlier, Um, Dallas, the the discussion in the breakfast nook. Um, Before Cain woke up, they were talking about this idea of quarantine. I'm still not clear. I'm, I'm still not sure if it's not just cryosleep, but I don't, I don't know what it would be that is quarantine, but you would think that that's what they would do. And you would definitely think Ash would fight tooth yeah. and nail for yeah, that to be the case. Why is he okay with letting Kane's body go? I guess probably because he knows that it served its purpose and yeah. it's time to just get, you know, if you guys want to give him a funeral, go ahead. To me, that's suspicious, but... <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, okay, wait a minute. We couldn't do anything with the with the face hugger. We can't do anything. Don't harm the chest burster. Wouldn't you think there'd be a scientific reason to keep Kane? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And but, just to say it's for his family. Yeah, I mean, there's that. You know, I don't think Ash would be interested in that part of it. But um, it's funny how cold this is. Um, oh, he says anything. I mean, they're all fine, but they're still. in shock. They're in shock. I think. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, I- sit in a room with you all day you know i would have something to say for I you i appreciate it it just jettisoned my body out <laughs> i will not shoot you out this way thank you uh, well i think that you know you can say the other in shock is that the point of the scene then just uh, i mean i think that it's strange to have dallas ask that question and have this just nothing come from it. i think that's a kind of big moment it's i don't I, it makes you wonder, is this really like a family here? Or do these people really even know each other? I mean, I think Dallas knows Kane or knew Kane, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but you know what you're all thinking about? You're not in that moment. You are ahead of that moment thinking, how the hell are we going to find this thing? And you're fearing for your life. I think that nobody can, they're just too caught up in what do we do next? I don't think that there was time to be... Um, I don't know. They're emotional for themselves. Yeah. yeah. There's something that is also just really bleak and ef- and very effective about this moment. I mean, it is so, it is just so sad and just so exhausted. And it's interesting that they're all to kind. Of, they're all in this five shot actually. And then at one point, Ash leaves the shot, and then we've got our four, which isn't telling at a moment, I think. Mm-hmm. But then we've got our four kind of watching this this happen uh and it's it's just it's such a great moment thank god scotty's not playing the bagpipes yeah that's what i I was actually thinking about it it doesn't happen for three more years but the you know on the enterprise you get a big the captain gets says some very grandiose words and even gets choked up and scotty plays bagpipes you're certainly not (laughs) and and you know it's the death it's the same uh spoilers for wrath of khan everyone uh it's the same person on the ship. It's the executive officer of the ship and everything. It's actually kind of strangely similar. But boy, is it different in Star Trek. Yeah, it's true. Tom Skerritt of Dallas didn't 
Like, hey, man, he's the one that should be saying something now that you mention it. It's true. No, for sure. I mean, we've we've theorized they they probably go back pretty far. They yeah. seem to be very familiar. Um, there's some unspoken kind of moments between, or when they're talking about something else, but Tal- Dallas seems to understand Kane. You know, it figures he wants to go out onto the planet and and so on. So, but also Dallas does seem to be a man of few words. He's not Kirk, who's got to say something big and grandiose at the end of every episode of Star Trek. You know, Dallas is a lot different kind of captain. So I can understand him while being the closest to Kane, maybe being the man of few words that he is. He wouldn't say anything either. I would just think somebody would just want it. When the captain says, anybody want to say something, I, somebody should say something, but I get it. Wasn't there a moment in one of the earlier drafts where Kane's body, his mummified body, mm. I don't know, catches on the side of the ship or something, and there's some really cheap scare where yeah. his body bangs against the porthole or something? I think that's a cutscene because I have a visual image of that. I thought that happened. Well, I think we talked about it, but we'll just mention it again. It's a... a Early O'Bannon idea. It was when the when it was Star Beast, and the idea of the movie was much more like Dark Star. And there's the Ron Cobb concept of this bubble on top of the ship, sort of a, a fortress of solitude for everyone who wants to go up there, where they go up there and they relax. And there was going to be a sex scene between Dallas and Ripley. While they're having sex, Kane's body just bashes into that dome, <laughs> and it's a cheap scare and a laugh. And obviously. That idea, the script in that uh, at that phase did not have even the same approach at all to what we end up seeing. You know, it's obviously more of a comedy at that point, but so yeah, <laughs> that's out of Spaceballs. <laughs> that's Spaceballs, Dark Star, yeah, <laughs> yeah, wacky sci-fi. There is still this Egyptian motif, though, in terms of the way that he's wrapped. He does look like a mummy, and there are still these residual pieces of design from the original concepts of the movie uh, and I always think of that when I see that it's like I, I had a I had a G.I. Joe that had a, a mummy that would you could take out of the sarcophagus and it was about I don't know six eight inches long right mm-hmm. it looked just like that cane thing because <laughs> right when you had G.I. Joe's they were like six to eight inches yeah long. Right, they were tall they were a foot you know well, yeah this is a very that short was mummy, back, way back then way back then um my G.I. Joe's were regular action figures I understand I understand I just wanted to point that out yeah, so I wanted to talk about the effect here, the this ejection effect. It's a it's a bait shooter. What's a bait shooter? Bait shooter. I got you know I've never shot bait. I have ca- <laughs> I've cast bait with a traditional rod and reel, but um, my guess is that this is a more of an industrial kind of way of shooting a line with bait out into the water as opposed to casting it. That's my guess. Mitch, do you have a better guess? No, I I remember thinking somebody said it was kind of like a a crossbow or something. Mm-hmm. Like a skeet shooter. Yeah, maybe that's what. Maybe, you know these the people that are talking about you know in the documentary on the Blu-ray the people that are talking about it, they are British. They, they say might, crazy. They say stuff that I don't understand all the time. So I I might have made my own guess on that. But um, so was it Brian? Was it Brian Johnson who made the figure? Is that right? I'm trying to remember the effects person that, man, I feel bad for not remembering that. Oh, that's totally awesome. I'm yeah, right down there. <laughs> What's that? That would be that would be us. We dropped the ball in the world. Who they would be like? Oh, I don't know. Margaret and Katie made that, but and then I didn't write it down either. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, he carved it. Whoever made this carved it out of wood. It's just a small piece of wood carved out to look like this little mummified body. And they shot it out of this bait shooter, whatever that is, perhaps a skeet shooter. And, you know, you can guess the trajectory. So they, they placed this inside the model, the Stromo model, and it's a level, you know, plane that it's shooting on. It's not something they pointed up in the air or anything like that. So you could guess the trajectory of it. Uh, apparently it was quite an undertaking to, to get the cut right. So it didn't look like it was just falling straight down into space. And he was, in the interview, absolutely impressed that they pulled it off. He, he just kept, I couldn't believe they cut it right at that. I could believe that they got it the right, you know, it's pretty impressive. And can't, I mean, that is a lo-fi effect if you ever get one. And it's great. Uh, let's do shooting that thing a couple times. That sounds really fun. They said it was fun. Then they said they started shooting each other with the thing, too. (laughs) Actually, for as tight as that schedule was, I heard there were a lot of hijinks. There was always hijinks. We don't have enough hijinks. I know, we need more hijinks. Like uh, drawing black around the eye hole of the camera so that whoever peeked... The DP would get black. Yeah, come back with a black. (laughs) Okay, we're totally... Nolan, we're totally doing that to you. (laughs) That's our DP. (laughs) I did miss the one shot where there is uh, this kind of computer countdown, <laughs> five, four, three, two, one, blast off, mm-hmm. which is really odd because it creates this strange anticipation for that thing to be ultimately fired off like that. I guess no one said anything. They just had to have countdown. Poor guy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you guys if you did that to me because <laughs> I know that you're thinking about how you're going to save your hide. All right. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm not going to shoot you. I'd say something nice. I won't do that to you. Okay. Thank you. Once again, this kind of ends right on a minute. And this, I mean, this movie just blows my mind how it's just built in these one minute increments. And so, unless you guys have anything else. Nope. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute number 58. Uh, visit us at alienminute.com or follow us on Twitter at alienminutepod. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at alienminutepodcast and come over to Facebook and talk to us on our listeners page. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 59.